Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. And, uh, yeah, Arthur, am I ready for Mythmoot? I am getting ready for Mythmoot. Uh, I am, uh, I've got my talk all prepared. That might not seem like saying very much, but uh, if you knew any more about how I operate, the fact that I have my talk all prepared like a full week in advance shows you how far ahead of the game I am when I'm thinking about Mythmoot here. Um, uh, yeah, hey, I've got my costume ready too. Uh, Arthur, yeah, no, I'm ready. I'm 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 set to go. Um, it's gonna be good. Uh, so uh, anyhow, yeah, no, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be fun, Arthur. Looking forward to your talk. Um, and uh, a quick reminder for those of you who aren't able to join us in person at Mythmoot this year, and I'm sorry if you can't, and hope maybe you'll be able to make it in a future year in person. Nevertheless, there's still time to sign up for Mootcast. So I strongly encourage you to. Um, uh, do that. I strongly encourage you to sign up for Mootcast. You can sign up for it through the end of the conference, but not thereafter. So uh, you still have like a week, one week and a half, basically. But uh, of course, we're going to start festivities on Thursday. Um, so um, uh, that'll be uh, that'll be that'll be fun. So uh, please do uh, remember to sign up for Mootcast uh, so that you can join us at least virtually, even if you can't be there uh, in person. So uh, anyway, that is going to be super fun. So can't wait for Mythmoot next year, next year too, next week, of course, is what I'm actually thinking of. Ooh, okay, right. Anyhow, um, one other quick um, uh, announcement that I am... Um, uh, that I, I wanted to make sort of a housekeeping announcement for uh, Mythgard Academy. So I've been conferring uh, with the Mind of Metal and Wheels, uh, Ed Powell, who has been helping run uh, the elections and everything for Mythgard Academy for years now. And uh, we've we've come to an executive decision between the two of us. So it's taken us a while to pick up on this, but... Uh, after some careful observation and uh, 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 and detailed analysis, um, we noticed we've noticed a trend, um, and we're suspecting at this point that the trend very likely to continue. Uh, we're asking ourselves, what are the odds that Morgoth's ring does not? win the next election, right? Uh, and and actually, it's kind of um, it's kind of complicating things. We wanted to sort of simplify things a little bit. So we've, just, we've decided at this point, nine volumes in to the history of Middle-earth and having voted the next volume of the history of Middle-earth every time for the last, like, four years, we're going to go ahead and, like, make that official um, because it's actually going to... Uh, simplify things greatly and uh there there have been some people for instance who have been anyway never mind uh, p uh people who have been voting differently because they're presuming that the next uh, uh volume is is gonna uh win and everything so anyway it's gonna make things simpler so here's what we're gonna do um we're gonna presume that our next three tolkien books are gonna be volume 10 11 and 12 of the history of middle earth um which means for the next election, so instead of voting in the next two, one of which is like, you know, 99% guaranteed uh, to be Morgoth's ring, uh, we're just going to uh, we're just going to hold an election for the 
interstitial book, right? Um, so the next book that we do after Sour and Defeated is still up in the air, right? And after that, we'll definitely plan to do Morgoth's Ring. So um, we just wanted to kind of formalize that, right? Um, and uh, I, I, so, I mean, unless there's some kind of public outcry, unless there were some of you who were planning to, you know, go out there and rally the vote against Morgoth's Ring and, and uh, you know, which, by the way, I couldn't scarcely comprehend as Morgoth's Ring is the one that contains the Athrobeth of Finrod and Andreth, which is like one of the coolest things Tolkien ever wrote. So um, anyway, yeah, that's... Um, uh, that, that, that's, uh, yeah, Nancy, I've been really looking forward to that one too. So yeah, so I, I totally think that we're going to, we're going to do that. So I think if anything, it should really just kind of simplify the voting for the books in the middle. Like, well, I'll just be, we'll, we'll be doing nominations just for the one book and we'll be, um, doing, um, um, uh, doing the, 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 the elections for that, of course. And then we'll, We'll, so we'll do that, then we'll do Morgoth's Ring, then we'll do an election for the next one. So anyway, that's small procedural change in practice. It's not going to really change anything, but it will greatly simplify the voting process, which is um, getting complicated. You know, we're kind of reviewing this, and, uh, you know, Ed was pointing out to me, he's like, do you realize how many people are in the Council of the Wise now? And I'm like, you know, that is an awesome and amazing thing. You know, uh, awesome, awesome and amazing to reflect on the levels of generosity of folks, to think that we have now se several hundred people who are donating to Signum University, a hundred bucks or more a year, um, is just such a wonderful, uh, 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 you know, testament to the generosity and uh, dedication of our people. Um, but of course, it, it on the other end is such a wonderful thing. But on the other end, makes things complicated, right? So, uh, uh, so that was one step that we could do to simplify things, and it certainly made sense to me. Um, no question, Tony. There are other. Tolkien things we could talk about, right? He says, "What about the letters? What about Mister Bliss?" Oh yeah, no, there's, but you know. We only have three more volumes, the history of Middle-earth, and then, goodness, you know, wow, the world is our oyster at that point, and then we'll have to change things up, right? Um, but, um, yeah. So so we'll see. I'll be really interested to see. Uh, the, the election, it's, I'm always keen uh, to see the election and often surprised at how it goes. Uh, there have been some real kind of come-from-behind uh, moments here uh, in the... Um, uh, in the elections in the past. And uh, Maori was a surprise uh, to me and uh, uh, really fun. Uh, uh, long, but fun. Uh, anyway, so I'm, uh, I'm excited to see uh, where we go next after this. Um, so uh, yeah, maybe a very short book this time. Possibly. Possibly, right? I mean, we've done some, right? Like, uh, we only did one. We knew it was five weeks. Wasn't it five weeks? Maybe six weeks on Boethius? When we did Boethius, that was very short. I think we did a, a, a book a week. You know, five books of, of uh, Consolation of Philosophy. We did one book per week. Um, but, um, yeah, Dracula wasn't that long. Yeah, no, I mean, there have been a bunch. I mean, it used to be back in the old days, uh, before we did Maori, 12 sessions you know, was a long, you know, pretty substantial, uh, class. So, um, now of course, having done, what was it? 36 was the final count for Maori. Um, uh, yeah, Jonathan Strange was long, but that one, what, 14, maybe we did 14 sessions, which again was like 
barely over a third of of uh, the Maori class. So anyway, we'll see what happens. Looking forward to seeing your nominations. Looking forward to discussing whatever book it is that you guys want to talk about next together. So that'll be great. So um, the election will the elections will start in uh, probably in July. Uh, so next month uh, we're going to have a little hiatus after this week. Uh, next week, of course, is the night before Mythmoot, and I'm getting up at like four o'clock in the morning on the next day on Thursday, so we won't do class next week. Even I thought it was probably imprudent to teach class until midnight the day before I'm going to get up at four in the morning and drive for, uh, uh, you know, eight hours. Um, and then, you know, uh, 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 do a recreation of the flight to the Ford, right? So, uh, anyway, um, so... So no class next week. And then the week after that is the uh, 4th of July week. And I'm going to be traveling with my family that week. So um, we will be, well, actually, so we'll have two full weeks off and it won't be until like the 10th or 11th or whatever that is uh, of July that we will come back together for class again. So um, anyway, so I just wanted to kind of mention the housekeeping stuff. Uh, we haven't done an election in a long time because Maori's been so long, but we are doing one during this uh, year during this round. Uh, so that's good. Uh, and um, as I said, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, Ed is going to continue to collect votes by email or he's going to announce it by email. He has a link that he sends people uh, for an online form for voting. Um, so yeah, um, uh, be on the lookout for that in July. I'll tell you again when that is coming out. Um, but uh, just to keep you guys posted on how this is going to work. All right. Um, that's good. Let's uh, carry on here because we've got a lot to talk about here uh, when we get to the scouring of the Shire and still a little bit leading up to that. So um, Frodo is really the story for tonight. Gandalf a little bit, but uh, what Tolkien Tolkien's first impulse with Frodo uh, at the end of the Fellowship of the Fellowship of the Ring, at the end of the, of the Return of the King is, I think, very interesting and very remarkable. I certainly agree with Christopher Tolkien's fascination in that particular change. Um, and uh, we'll get to there. First of all, let's remember. Now, of course, the other extremely striking thing about the scouring of the Shire is the absence of Saruman, right? Um, that's another one of those things which, you know, if you'd asked me in advance, I would never have predicted that... Um, I would never have predicted that... Saruman's involvement in the scouring of the Shire would be not quite an afterthought, but like a third draft thing, right? Um, that almost the entire shape of the um, scouring of the Shire would be present, but Saruman not there. Now, conceptually, he's there, right? Like, it's there, we're, we're still saying that it's basically Saruman's fault. It's still sort of an extension of Saruman's malice and Saruman's disease, but he, he himself being there. Um, even that the name Sharky is used, it's just attached to some other random dude, right? Um, and uh, not to, uh, and then, uh, and not to, to Saruman himself. It is disconcerting. That is a very good word for it, Kate. Um, I agree with that. So yeah, it's remarkable. But when we, I, I, we talked about this uh, passage at the end of last time, but I just wanted to come back briefly to it because this is one of those pass. I mean, in retrospect, this helps to make sense of it, right? Given that his impulse, as we looked at last time, 
given that his impulse was to redeem Saruman, right? To have Saruman actually repent and even have this touching moment. Remember where Mary invites him to come live in the Shire. If you get tired of wandering in the wild, come to the Shire. This sort of really tender um, uh, moment, right? Between Saruman and Mary. Um, it, it makes more sense, right? That we, you know, we still have the troubles in the Shire, which need to be put right. And those are still, you know, we're, we're still seeing the ripples of the evil that Saruman has done in that. <clears throat> and yet Saruman himself has been redeemed, right? Saruman himself has, uh, uh, has changed and, and reformed. And that makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, yeah, Stephen, uh, the the Sharky thing, right? The the etymology for Sharky that Tolkien gives in in the footnote um, seems clearly, in retrospect, to be a later edition, right? Um, but I agree, that's the part of it that makes it so surprising, right? Because we sort of think of that, right? Like we're like, okay, so Sharku it means old man, right? So it comes to Sharky. It's like, no, no, he he first makes up the name, then he applies the name to other people, then he applies the name to Saruman, then he makes up the etymology for it. And it's not the first time, right? That is, I mean, of course, the most famous example of this is Hobbit, right? You know, he seems to make up, you know, he, he seems to make up. He makes up the, the, the word Hobbit. I know there are some people who are like, there are examples of Hobbit before, but I really don't think that, you know, he was like, oh, yes, I am... Referring to hobbits from the anyway, whatever, um, I, I think he basically was making it up, um, even though it had been used before, perhaps. Um, but anyway, he makes up the word hobbit, and then eventually, like much, much, much later, when writing the appendices, finally makes up the etymology for it with the Holbitland thing, right? The whole builders, um, that's like way after the fact, um. So, yeah, it's um, it's really interesting to see that go. And it's it's funny because, you know, sometimes and this is uh, something I've observed in other contexts. Right. Often I find that serious Tolkien fans can uh, make the very amiable <laughs> error of taking Tolkien almost too seriously. Right. But uh, by which I mean, like, he'll say something and they'll remember it, right? And sort of, like, this is the most commonly made with what he says about allegory, right? When when he's like, I've cordially disliked allegory. And so Tolkien fans will kind of latch onto that sentence where he says he cordially dislikes allegory and, you know, and then, like, transmute that into a law. There is no allegory in Tolkien, which is, of course, not true. Um, he doesn't use it much and he doesn't like it much and he's not very good at it, to be totally honest, because he doesn't think that way. He doesn't like it. Um, but he does use it. Like, you can't, you can't just kind of take similarly Tolkien fans will say like oh it begins with the languages right it begins with the languages and the stories emerge from the language so we see a linguistic point like that um uh, uh Stephen right and and we're like oh so clearly that's where it came from right so this is Tolkien we're talking about right so obviously first he's got the word Sharku and then he's like he develops that into Sharky because it's Saruman and so obviously that has to come first and then of course it turns out no it came last actually right you know so um just goes to show right <laughs> it just goes to show um yeah yeah 
Um, yeah, Tony, I agree. Leaf by Niggle is a great example. He does a lot of allegory in Leaf by Niggle, and that's where he does it, by the way, most successfully. Uh, Leaf by Niggle is by far Tolkien's most successful allegory. Whereas, like I would say, Tolkien's least successful allegory is uh, Smith of Wooten Major. Not saying that that story is unsuccessful. It's a wonderful story, but it's a terrible allegory. Um, it was only after I read his own essay on it later on when he says that it was meant to be an allegory that I was like, what, really? For real? It was? Okay. Didn't get that at all, right? Totally missed that. And then he explains it, and I'm like, no, no, still not seeing it. Like, it just doesn't work that well. Um, the allegory, by the way, in Smith of Wooten Major is that the cooks are supposed to be priests, so, like, the the whole chef thing is supposed to be like the church, Um and the, 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 the head cooks are like the parish priests. Uh, like it's, so it's supposed to be an allegory in that way. And I'm like, mm, no, no, not, not feeling it. Like it just doesn't, again, he, he doesn't really think that way and doesn't, uh, doesn't do that. Um, uh, yeah, James, I agree when he does this sort of quasi allegorical, I mean, they're not even exactly allegory. It's more. Uh, but anyway, uh, like uh, uh, James uh, Oakley is thinking of the um, um, day, month, and year guys from the Book of Lost Tales. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, this sort of enacted like, myth as enacted allegory, right? Yeah, it gets when he tries that, it's pretty awkward, um, and he drops it pretty quickly. Um, uh, so yeah, no, exactly, uh, Marianne. I, 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 again, I love Smith too. Um, and again, I, I kind of like <laughs> I read that when he was talking about how he was kind of attempting that allegory. And then I'm just like, nah, I think I'm just going to chuck that actually. Right. I mean, if I, if I try to apply that, it doesn't really work and it, it's, it kind of messes everything up. So I'm like, just going to carry on as if I never read that. <laughs> right. It's, if you don't think of it as an allegory, the tale works super well. Um, but uh, uh, anyway, yeah. No, see, Takako, I do think it's true that I think sometimes if it's kind of done unconsciously, it can be better. There are people who are really good at it. C.S. Lewis is way better than Tolkien at allegory. Um, he he has that kind of a mind more. more. Not, and I don't want to get too distracted, not that the Chronicles of Narnia are an allegory, because they're not, but uh, but he does do allegory. And when he does allegory, um, he's much better at it uh, because he, unlike Tolkien, really enjoys allegory and read a lot of allegory for fun. Um, but anyway, it's fine. Um, uh, allegory, deliberate, carefully constructed allegory is uh, kind of a lost art. Um Pure allegory, like you want to read pure allegory, C.S. Lewis's uh, uh, Pilgrim's Regress, that is pure allegory, um, pure allegory of, of an old kind, like uh, Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan, um, like um, um, uh, you know, many of the, the medieval allegories, like the Romance of the Rose and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, Saruman, goodness, how do we get there? No idea. But anyway. Um, oh, yeah. People taking Tolkien too seriously. Sharky didn't come first. Got it. All right. All right. All right. I'm back. Okay. Um, anyway, so let's go on and look at how it does emerge. And the thing that is interesting to me, like, of course, we'll, we notice, we'll, we will notice, right, that it's different, right? Okay. So, um, you know, the 
the story didn't come out in the same way. There are a couple things I want to observe about that as we're going to see that. Um, but one of the primary things, just to kind of focus our, our analysis of it and our discussion of it, what I'm most interested in whenever I see the story going kind of in a different direction in the first draft is what does this suggest to us about the concepts? Like, what's, what is the story, right? What is the story he's trying to tell? Here and then, how does the, how do the fundamental fundamental principles of that story change, right? As he goes through and revises, um, and I think that Christopher Tolkien puts his finger on a bunch of that when in his own discussion of it. But I think there's some other things that we can see that uh, Christopher doesn't get into. So, um, sorry, Stephen. I hope it didn't blow your mind saying that uh, Pilgrim's Progress was allegory. Yeah, I know. I know. It's hard to it's it's hard to catch. It's pretty subtle, but you know, um, uh, Pilgrim's Progress has my. Uh, my favorite allegorical character ever who's perfectly aware of his allegorical status when he comes in and he says, my name is Honest, and I hope I am. I love that. Uh, Bunyan is fantastic. I love allegory, by the way. Yet another way in which I know, much as I love Tolkien, he and I do not think very much alike. Um, but anyway, okay, moving on. Okay, just a couple last notes here from the many partings section. In the parting of Mary from Eomer and Eowyn, they address him as Mariotic of the Shire and of the Mark. The name Holdwina of the Mark was only introduced in the galley proof. And Eomer says, says this of the gift of the horn, which he does not attribute to Eowyn. But you will take naught but the arms that were given you. This I suffer, because though we are of other lands and kind, still you are to me a dear kinsman, whose love can only be requited with love. But this one gift I beg you now to take. The horn is described in the same words as in The Return of the King, but then follows, This is an heirloom of our house, said Eowyn, and in the deeps of time it was made for our forefathers by the dwarves struck out of Dale, and Eorl the Young brought it from the north. The statement that the horn came from the horde of Scotha the Worm entered on the galley proof. So here are two things. So the galley proof, we're talking about very late, right? Galley proof is when, like, he's already gotten the the the, the galleys. So, uh, you know, meaning like the the from the from the publisher, right? The 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 sheets that show how it's going to be laid out on the page, um, and it's his last chance to go through and make changes. So. Um, if he's making the changes on the galley proof, um, that is literally the last opportunity to make to make edits in the text before it goes to print. Um, so in that last possible second, that's when we get the, the birth of Scott of the Worm uh, and the Mary's name, uh, Holdwina. Um um, that's another kind of small scale version, right? You read about Scava the Worm and it's like, oh yeah, this like came from a, this came from a dragon horde. That's seriously cool. And it feels like, oh, that's a very Tolkien point. Right. Um, and, uh, very much not a part of the original story. Anyway, um, interesting to me that one of the things that I was interested in is that, that first impulse, right? He wants to make it an heirloom of their house. And so he has them bring it out of the North um, you know, for, in the deeps of time, but it only goes back to Dale, as I was joking in my subtitle there, presumably not the toy market of Dale, um, though that would seem to kind of bring things around 
full circle to the musical instruments that the Hobbit children are playing at Bilbo's party back in chapter one, right? Um, they're, they're pulling crackers, which were made in Dale, and they're pulling musical instruments um, uh, manufactured for them. So the Horn of Mary from, uh, from Rohan is also from Dale, right? Um, though in a more, you know, epic tradition than the musical instruments, presumably, that they were playing, the Hobbit kids were playing at the party. Um, but it's a, it's a, on the one hand, it's, it's sort of an interesting point, right? It's, it's a fun kind of reminder that, well, remember Legolas's comment when they're approaching Edoras and Aragorn is kind of telling them about the Rohirrim and, um, and, you know, and, 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 and Gandalf too, uh, kind of briefing, uh, especially, um, Gimli and Legolas, right, about the Rohirrim. And Legolas is like 500 years. Yeah, whatever, right? Like, they, you know, they, they've been living here for 500 years, which is barely anything, right, uh, from Legolas's point of view. And even from Gimli's point of view, certainly culturally speaking, it's a very short time. So we get this brief glimpse into the fact that the deeps of time from a Rohiric perspective are relatively shallow, right? Um, and uh, it goes back to something which the dwarves would consider relatively recent history, right? And that's a fun kind of historical point and something that, um, you know, to me, it's a really neat kind of glimpse into one of the ways in which Tolkien is doing his world building, right? And thinking about the implications of this world that he has made, right? With these different races, with these fundamentally different perspectives. Because, of course, to any culture like that of Rohan, right? I mean, like to the Anglo-Saxons, um, 500 years before, I mean, that is the deeps of time, right? That is immeasurably dist- the immeasurably distant past. Um, and it's, it's kind of refreshing because many people as readers really lose sight of that perspective, right? It is so easy to get into the habit of thinking about the things that happened 3,000 years ago in Middle-earth history as like, oh, like, surely everybody remembers everything about the War of the Last Alliance, right? Without thinking that was 3,000 years ago. Like, how many details do you know about what happened 3,000 years ago on planet Earth, anywhere on planet Earth, right? Um, Maybe you know a couple things that you think probably happened 3,000 years ago, but we don't have that much detail, right? Um, And so... But of course, it's different with elves and even with dwarves, and that. But but again, that kind of mixture I think is a really fun moment. However, I kind of like the um, I kind of like the second time, um, the second time that you know when he comes back to this and says, "Okay, no, I don't want to just sort of emphasize how the 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 Rohirrim are kind of newbies on this." I really do want that horn to be epic, right? So instead, he makes it come from a dragon horde, which is a pretty awesome pedigree, right? Um, And also, in a sense, if you think about it, a similar kind of circling back to Bilbo at the beginning, right? Just as Bilbo comes back from his adventure with, you know, treasure from the dragon's horde, right? Uh, Mary comes back to the Shire as well at the end with treasure from the dragon horde. Um, so even that basic concept of circle of, uh, you know, kind of coming back full circle to the, you know, the way that they return as like, well, I was going to say like as a second Bilbo collectively as a second Bilbo, right. Um, 
we we can still see that, but on the on the high epic end rather than the sort of lower comedic end of that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> James Oakley says exploring the Lord of the Rings session number one seems in the deeps of time. <laughs> yeah, it will be the deeps of. By the time we finish, the beginning of that class will be the deeps of time. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, Kate, I do believe. Trying to remember the exact date of his death. I think Shakespeare was still alive 500 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, that's that's a good framework, right, from the modern day. Um, yeah. That was a long time ago. Right. It's the deeps of time. Um and think of the advantages that we have, right, in how well we remember the last 500 years, uh, comparatively. Um, uh, exactly, Stephen. Uh, we can, you know, just watch the History Channel. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, good. Uh, oh, the other thing I wanted to point out about this, I just, I loved that um, that speech about still you are to me a dear kinsman whose love can only be requited with love. Um, I just love that, you know, the idea of, I like that being stated explicitly. I think it's still implicit in the published text. I don't think that that's like something that he's changed exactly, but at the same time, it's not explicit, right? So, um, it's possible to read The Return of the King and their attitude, Eomir and Eowyn's attitude towards Mary, as, again, I'm not saying that I think this is the correct reading, but given how little is said explicitly, it is possible to read them as kind of doing this sort of honorary, like they're, they're, they're honoring, they're genuinely honoring Mary for his deeds, but like his giving him the 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 title you know holdwina of the mark you know making him a knight of 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 uh, of rohan is kind of ceremonial right um and um i don't mean to imply that i you know i think in the published text they don't take him seriously but as i said if you um if you wanted to do a reading that said amir and eowyn you know they honor Mary for what he did, but it's kind of it's kind of honorary, right? They don't really um, sort of fully kind of accept him that way. Um, that's um, um, it would be possible to maintain that reading, and I, I'm not saying I would agree with that reading, but you could make it. You could you could maintain that reading. You could support that reading. I think, um, but here having him explicitly saying that, like you are to me a dear kinsman. Because though we are of other lands and kind, still you are to me a dear kinsman. Um, even that, you think of the... I mean, there's a certain amount of xenophobia in the Rohirric culture, right? They don't trust outsiders, especially outsiders who are super different from them. The Dunlendings are different enough, right? Um, but think of their relationship with the elves, right? And the, the, they're and they're not super quick to accept Gimli either. Um, they, there's more than a little xenophobia in the whole cultural outlook of Rohan, and for them to not only overcome that, but um, you know, to to make this kind of personal declaration, um, "You are to me a dear kinsman, whose love can only be requited with love." That's a wonderful statement. 
Um, I really like that. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Tony, I agree. Even the Gondorians are kind of seen with a side eye. They're, they're not the same, right? I mean, they look up to the Gondorians, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyhow, okay. Uh, thinking about... Um, um, okay, so now they turned their faces for home, and though they rode now, they rode but slowly. But they were at peace, and in no haste, and if they missed their companions of their adventures, still they had Gandalf, and the journey went well enough once they passed beyond Weathertop. For at the fords of Bruinin, Frodo halted, and was loath to ride through, and from here on to Weathertop he was silent and ill at ease, but Gandalf said nothing. And when they came to the hill, he said, Let us hasten, and would not look towards it. My wound aches, he said, and the memory of darkness is heavy on me. Are there not things, Gandalf, that cannot ever be wholly healed? Alas, it is so, said Gandalf. I guess it is so with my wounds, said Frodo. Um, the element here, which is really fascinating, and here I think that, um, that, um, Christopher's insight into this is spot on and a really important one. What we see here, the difference between this first draft and the published text here, is Tolkien's shift from originally uh, the the final version in the in the final text. The relapse of Frodo's symptoms is going to coincide with the date. Right, every year on the year, on the anniversary of his wounding at Weathertop, at the anniversary of his stinging by Shelob, right, he is going to re-experience some of those symptoms. Here, it's attached not to the time, but to geography, right? It's when he's crossing the Fort of Bruin, and when he is once again in the place where he was when he confronted the Witch King and collapsed, right? At the place, you know, when he's passing by Weathertop and looking back at the place where he was stabbed, um... That's, uh, um, uh, yeah, that's, um, uh, that's where it's, uh, it, it, it comes up. On the one hand, the, um, uh, yeah, Nancy, I think that's exactly it. Nancy says that the time is harder to avoid, right? Um, in a lot of ways, this makes more intuitive sense to me, right? Um, that is, um, uh, so, um, it makes more sense to me that when he's in the place, he feels it again. Um, the idea that for some reason, like, why is it that the turning of the year should have that effect exactly, right? No matter where he is, you know, on October 6th, right? He's gonna, um he's going to feel his, his wound. Um, you know, that's, um, yeah, yeah. Carita says, uh, that this made her sadder than she would have expected. The experience of going to familiar places and feeling familiar suffering is more real, at least to me. Exactly. Carita, that feels more real to me too. Um, uh, but of course, Nancy, as you suggest, um, there's an easier remedy to that, right? Don't go, right? Don't go back. Um, and clearly one of the things that Tolkien wanted was the continual relapse into his suffering 
as the years go by, even back in the Shire where everything's fine and nothing's wrong, right? Um, it's still, he can't get away from it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Stephen, exactly. How often is he, is he going to be visiting the Fords, right? Well, like every time he goes to Rivendell, but again, he doesn't go ever again, in fact, right? So I can see how it, it is it is more functional in that way in order to tell the story that he wants to tell, which is how Frodo cannot be healed, right? How he is in recurring suffering, you know, that does not stop as the years go by. Um, that story, it works better to convey that story, to to connect it with the time. But but Karita, you yeah, you really put your finger on that there, I think. This this feels more powerful to me in that way. Um and even, you know, thinking about this scene as we thought about that for, you know, we spent a long time at the Fords of Bruin and, ex- and exploring the Lord of the Rings. One of the main things that really struck me as we were going through and discussing that and exploring the Lord of the Rings was the significance of the Fords of Bruinen as a boundary, right? When they are talking about, you know, that, that race to the Ford, like there's this sense of, you know, if he can just, if he can just cross the Ford, he'll be safe. And, and he is, in fact, right? Doesn't kind of, kind of looks touch and go for a second, but he is, in fact, safe after he gets across the boundary. And here he's, he's going home, right? But he's, he's crossing the boundary back again, right? Um, it's not quite the same thing now. There's no Witch King there, but, but still, you know, um, the way and the kind of impact that that has, you know, that sense of like, yes, I'm going home. Everything's fine, right? Every step brings me closer to peace and comfort and all of the loved and familiar things. Um, and yet he's going back over that ground again. He's revisiting those places. It, uh, he is still haunted by the suffering that he has had along the way. Um, and it, I think that that really, that really, that really works. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but I mean, you're right. I don't deny the significance of, uh, um, grief, especially, um, the connection between grief and time and Kit. I absolutely hear that, you know, Kit saying as a, as a widow, there are anniversaries that are very bad days. Absolutely. Um, and that seems to me, especially true of grief, um, a little harder to attach. It seems to me to this kind of thing, right? I mean, maybe, I don't know. Um, uh, I mean, I'd be interested to hear from anyone who has ex- experienced this kind of trauma, like maybe somebody who is terribly wounded or something, um, uh, you know, combat trauma, that kind of thing. If the anniversary of that is hard, um, I know, kid, I'm familiar with that. The, the, uh, grief, the connection between grief and anniversaries, those reminders of, uh, of, of things that, that is, uh, you know, uh, uh, Patricia was just saying the same thing. Absolutely. Um, um, but, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Yeah. Stephanie says, uh, she has secondhand experience with that. Yeah. And combat trauma definitely coincides with dates. Okay. Yeah. Well, again, Tolkien would know about this, right? I mean, I'm sure because uh, and of course, in Tolkien's own life, the two are combined, right? You have the trauma of his experience in World War Two in in World War One, rather, 
which then coincides with his grief for his his closest friends, right, who died uh, uh, there. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I agree, uh, Devora. The, the, it is a really important point to remember. That it's not just about memories, right? Not to say that just memories, as if that's unimportant or something. But, uh, but, but yes, I agree. It's um, uh, it is the physical pain of his physical wounds, right, which comes back to him uh, at that on on those dates, right? It's not only the psychological trauma of the grief and the memory. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, Druid's Fire, I see that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I do um I do definitely respect that significance of of uh of dates there. Um but yeah, Devora, it's and I think that's the element with the dates that specifically I find hardest to kind of wrap my imagination around. Um again, I can easily wrap my imagination around the the anniversaries of traumas or the anniversaries of grief, right? That are associated with grief, different anniversaries associated with grief. Um, but I have a harder time with the why a physical relapse should be associated with the dates, especially since it's not psychosomatic, right? I mean. He's not even aware. Frodo doesn't even appear to be aware of the fact that it's um, the, like l- later on when it happens again, right? Um, it's not. It's not a psychological trigger, right? Oh, you know, this is the date. Yeah, and it, like even when he doesn't have it, right? Even when he doesn't know, remember that it's that. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, so. Yeah, and, and you know, Marianne, I think that's fair. Um, that you know, perhaps these are relapses of the Fea even more than the Hroa. Yes, I mean, I think it is fair to say, um, yeah, Stephen, as you're suggesting, because it's a spiritual wound causing physical pain. Yeah, so that it's not, it is something in his spirit, um, rather than merely uh, physical symptoms, like purely bodily symptoms. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. Okay. Anyway, sorry. I don't want to get too distracted on this, but I thought that that was, uh, this passage really made me kind of think about that and how that worked in the return of the King. Uh, and again, just how, um, it is, I find it so much more poignant, so much more psychologically powerful. Um, this depiction of Frodo's, not just this one compared to the other ones. I, what I mean is, it would have been one thing to depict Frodo. And sometimes people talk this way. Sometimes people say, like, well, Tolkien would have been well aware, you know, very familiar with people who come back physically broken from the war. 
right? Um, you know, people who come back and they're missing limbs or they're, you know, they're carrying shrapnel for the rest of their lives or that, you know, they uh, have inhaled gas and their whole respiratory system is shot now and, you know, have all kinds of problems uh, resulting from, from, you know, so they've returned home from the war, but nothing's the same, right? Because their body has been permanently damaged and they can't just, can't just fully recover from that. Um, yes, I mean, no question, that's true, but and and I think that Tolkien kind of captures that, but what he does is more than that. Like uh, he does that, but it's it's like he takes the the trauma. You know, he takes grief, right? The grief trauma. He takes the PTSD uh, trauma, right? Uh, he takes the that kind of lingering physical, you know, like the physical changes of circumstance as a result from these kinds of wounding or maiming. And he sort of combines them all into one really, um, really complicated, but really spiritually and psychologically rich sort of state of Frodo at the end. Right. Um, And the way that he's able, even the very diversity of the kinds of experiences that so many of you are connecting to Frodo's experience here is in itself, I think, a, a remarkable testimony to what uh, Tolkien captures here uh, in in Frodo's experience in Frodo's condition there at the end. Um, yeah, he takes real life stuff and makes it mythic, Tarlonio. He really does. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, I was just really struck by that. I want to talk about that for a couple minutes here. Uh, last point before we go on to the showering, scouring of the Shire. Um, just a couple. This passage contained a few of the interesting name points. Um, fascinating to see how many of the names don't get fixed until the very, very last second. And out came Barnabas, wiping his hand on his apron and looking as bustled as ever, uh, though there seemed few folk about, and not much talk in the common room. Indeed, he looked in the dim lamplight, rather more wrinkled and careworn. Well, well, he said, I never expected to see any of you again, and that's a fact. Going off into the wild with that trotter. For real? Whatever response Butterbur made to Gandalf's request, and if you have any tobacco, we'll bless you, ours has long since been finished, is not reported. When Butterbur objects that he didn't want a whole crowd of strangers settling here and camping there and tearing up the wild country, Gandalf tells him, There's room enough for realms between Eisen and Greyflood, and along the shores between Greyflood and Brandywine. And many folk used to dwell north away, a hundred miles and more from you, on the North Downs, and by... And by Ninuial, uh, or even dimmer, if you have if you have heard of it, I should not wonder if the dead men's dyke is filled with living men again. King's Norbury is its right name in your tongue. One day the king may come again. First of all, can I just say, I really wish that um, I really wish that he had kept the name even dimmer. I love that. Uh, Christopher Tolkien says rather loftily in his commentary, I have no explanation for the name Evendimer. I have an explanation for the name Evendimer. It's hilarious. Exactly, Nancy. You got Evendim over here and you got Evendimer over there, right? It's a joke. It's a joke, right? Uh, I love that. It's, that's, that's hysterical. So, like, Evendim is kind of a translation, but, um, but it's 
it's it's it's better if that translation is not kept in a pure form, uh, but like turned into a colloquial joke by the locals, right? You call it even dimmer. Uh, I mean, come on, that's hysterical. Um, it does sound a little bit Norse, Tony, mostly because just the ending of the, you know, the, the ER ending makes anything sound Norse. Uh, but, um, but I, again, come on, even dimmer. That's really funny. Um, you've got, you've got dead men's dyke and then even dimmer over there. Um, man, come on. Um, but, uh, uh, anyway, I thought that was awesome. Um, Three other names I would want to draw attention to, of course, Barnabas. He's still Barnabas Butterbur. Um, uh, he, his name doesn't change to Barlaman until, uh, again, later, like very, very last, uh, very, very last drafts here. Um, so, and that's, a, to me, a fairly small point, right? I mean, I can't say that I can see a principled distinction. I mean, of course, it's one of those things, right? Like, we all think of him as Barlaman Butterbur, so to see him being called Barnabas Butterbur um, just looks weird, right? Um, but if we try to get over that fact, I don't myself see any um, um, any real reason why Barlaman should be preferable to Barnabas, exactly, or sort of like what in principle, um, that change would seem to suggest about a sort of any sort of development, uh, in, uh, in Tolkien's naming process there. Um, whereas, um, yeah, Zachary, maybe that's it. Um, maybe it's, uh, um, maybe, um, Barnabas is too, is too biblical or just like too Greek. Right. Um, you know, uh, and so therefore that's why he changes it, because he doesn't want it. He doesn't want a Greek New Testament name uh, to be uh, to be there in the book. That would be my guess. Yeah. Stephen was just thinking, just thinking the, the same thing. Um, but um, but anyway, I mean, I, I get that. I, it still seems to me rather a small change, unlike the change of Trotter to Strider which has still not taken permanent residence, right? Um, and I'm trying to remember now, this made, me, this made me doubt myself. He did make that change, right, to Strider. I mean, I, Aragorn's, change is un, uh, Aragorn's name, rather, has undergone such a... I mean, he's come a long way since he was, since he was Gandalf's horse, right? Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, uh, he did do the Trotter to Strider change, right? That did happen? Didn't that happen? I can't even remember now. He was Trotter for so long. I mean, he was Trotter way up into the two towers, and then, of course, he, like, got his name Aragorn, and that was better. Um, but um, whether he's still Trotter and not yet to Strider, or whether Tolkien is perhaps inadvertently reverting to Trotter here... Um, Fascinating that that name is still lingering. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but the word that I was especially interested in, the fateful change, tobacco, right? He's still using the word tobacco, and you'll notice he uses the word tobacco throughout the first and second draft of The Scouring of the Shire, too, 
right? It is apparently only at the very last minute that um, he ch- made the choice to say, I'm not going to use the word tobacco. I'm going to call it pipeweed instead, just because I don't want to use the word tobacco because it's a modern word. Um, I want to use a more, more pure Anglo-Saxon words. So I'm just going to make up a new word, uh, conjunction of two simple old monosyllabic Anglo-Saxon words, pipe and weed. Uh, and, uh, so it'll be the weed that you put in pipes. Uh, and thus with that last second fateful decision, unbeknownst to himself, opened himself up for generations and generations of marijuana jokes, which, of which I must admit I have tired somewhat in the last decade of my life. Um, uh, so yeah, I total confession. Part of me wishes Tolkien had just stuck with tobacco there. Had he been calling it explicitly tobacco all the way through, um, lots and lots of not very funny marijuana jokes, uh, would have been prevented, but not something Tolkien really could have predicted, but just interesting. Again, another one of those things that's, that's interesting, right? We know that Tolkien was very careful to only use words. You know, he, he didn't want to use words in the Lord of the Rings that had come into the language later than 1500. You know, that's kind of a famous like factoid about the Lord of the Rings. But you can see, right, that that's not something that he was doing all the way through. Right. It's not something that was informing his uh, writing from the beginning. That's a revision process thing. Right. He's going to take a word like tobacco and change it, but only at the last, you know, in the final stages uh, of uh, um, of revision. All right. Scouring the Shire. Gandalf's non-departure is one of the first very striking things, right? Um, Come along now, said the wizard. My name is Gandalf, and here is a brandy buck, a took, a baggins, and a gamgee. So if you don't open up quick, there will be more trouble than you bargain for, and long before sunrise. At that, a window slammed, and a crowd of hobbits poured out of the house with lanterns, and they opened the far gate, and some came over the bridge. When they looked at the travelers, they seemed more frightened than ever. "'Come, come,' said Mary, recognizing one of the hobbits. "'If you don't know me, Hob Hayward, you ought to.'" Um, uh, okay, so... Yeah, Stephen, I also think that the change that leaving Gandalf out of the beginning, at least, of the scouting, I mean, it's a, as we can see, it's a change that he made very quickly, right? He didn't plan to get rid of Gandalf, but as, when Gandalf comes in, Gandalf is acting in very Gandalfian ways, right? The scolding that he gives to the hobbits in the, in the, uh, in, you know, in, in the Shire house by the bridge um, uh, is very Gandalfian, right? Um, if you don't open up quick, there will be more trouble than you bargain for in long before sunrise, right? Um, sounds very like Gandalf, but it kind of takes away from the change in the hobbits, right, as they return, uh, for Gandalf to be just like scolding everybody, um, uh, himself. Um, yeah, 
Yeah. Um, yeah, Stephen, it, that is a really cool point, isn't it? Right, how uh, a brandy bucket took a Baggins and a Gamgee are all given equal billing, right? Um, uh, that is kind of cool, right? Uh, it's got to be the first time in Shire history that somebody's been like, you've got a Gamgee to deal with, right? Um, along with, you know, and and his companions, a brandy bucket took and a Baggins. Um, yeah, yeah. Tony, I agree. This does sound more Gandalf the Grey than Gandalf the White, though, you know, Gandalf the White certainly hasn't totally changed his personality, but, but yeah, um, uh, yeah, agreed. Yeah, uh, Patricia's thinking it sounds even, uh, even like sort of Gandalf from The Hobbit, with which, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so that's one of the first striking things, and again, Tolkien seems to get uncomfortable with this fairly quickly. Like, let's not have this problem solved by Gandalf coming in and smacking the hobbits around and uh, uh, until they all sort things out, right? Um, uh, yeah, I agree. Um, this was my... Fa- this is um, one of my uh, favorite recurring moments in reading the history of the Lord of the Rings are those moments when you read a line in an earlier draft that was kept into the later drafts, but whose context was changed by revision. But the line is the same. And now the line finally makes sense in like in a way that it just doesn't make sense anymore in the final edition for like, for me, one of the biggest examples of this is the, um, um, but he had not the power of Bombadil right at the, at the, 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 the Fords of Bruin in. Um, it's like, Okay, right. Uh, but of course, when we read in the first edition, how or in the first uh, draft, rather, how Bombadil, like there was a scene when the nine riders are coming towards Tom Bombadil and he tells them to stop and they stop, right? Uh, so Frodo does the same thing to the same guys and they don't stop. So it in the in that draft, it, it makes all kinds of sense. It's, still has meaning in the published text, but it's less clear, right? This was another example of that for me. I'm sorry, Mister Mary, but we have orders. Whose orders? The mayor's, Mr. Mary, and the chief sheriff's. Who's the mayor? said Frodo. Mr. Cosimo changed to Sackville of Bag End, so he says, Mr. Sackville of Bag End. Oh, is he indeed? said Frodo. And who's the chief sheriff? Mr. Baggins changed to Sackville of Bag End, so both times he responds with, Mr. Sackville of Bag End. Oh, indeed. Well, I'm glad he's dropped the Baggins at least. And he'll leave Bag End, too, if I hear any more nonsense. A hush fell on the hobbits beyond the gate. It won't do no good to talk that way, said Hob. He'll get to hear of it. And if you make so much noise, you'll wake up the big man. Um, okay, so um, two things on this slide that I was... Re- Again, the first is that comment, right? Um, I'm glad he's dropped the Baggins at any rate. That's the, that's the line, right? Um, uh in the published text, Frodo says that after he's told, but we have to call him uh, just the chief nowadays, right? And Frodo, to which Frodo responds by saying, well, I'm glad he's dropped the Baggins at any rate, right? Um, which, like, okay, right, he's not calling him, I, yeah, being called chief is sort of dropping the Baggins, um, but it's much more, it makes much more sense when he says that after hearing him called Mr. Sackville instead of Mr. Sackville Baggins, like he has literally dropped the Baggins out of his hyphenated name. Um, so that 
you know, uh, in the first version, that line makes much more sense and also transitions into Frodo's next thought. I'm glad he's dropped the Baggins at least, and he'll leave Bag End too, if I hear any more nonsense. Um, and that's really interesting, right? Uh, because one, one thing that's easy to happen, one, one, one mistake, well, no, I won't say mistake. Um, and here I have to admit that I'm drawing on some of the discussion that, uh, Tolkien did in his, um, uh, in his letters, right? Um, there's one of his letters when he is talking, uh, you know, there are several letters where somebody asks him a question and in response, um, to his, um, uh, in response to his questions, um, to the questions given to him, he like makes up a whole bunch of new stuff. Like he, he, um, you know, says things that are not in the books at all. Right. Um, one for instance was, uh, he unfolded a great deal more about Hobbit birthday traditions, right? When somebody was asking him about the whole giving other people presents on your birthday thing. Um, and, uh, and in a special about the ring and the birthday present, the question was the very sensible question. If Gollum was of Hobbit kind originally, why is it that he thinks that he should get a present on his birthday rather than giving one? Um, and Tolkien was kind of addressing that. Anyway, one of the other letters in which he does this kind of thing um, is he talks about the way that each of the major families have a head, right? Somebody who is sort of like the the, the head of that household, um, the head of that uh, uh, family, um, and how Bilbo is the head of the Baggins family and Frodo is his heir, right? Um, so it, there's more to it than just property possession, right? And so Bag End um, has become, through Bilbo's life, right? And, of course, his unusual, extraordinary and successful life and prolonged life— um, Bilbo has become the kind of figure it's like the, the implication is Bilbo has become the kind of figure that Bag End is now almost like the seat of the Baggins, right? Um, the one who is the head of the Baggins household. Um, and um, you, I think we can see hints of that kind of thinking here. He'll leave Bag End too. One might say, well, that's a little harsh. Didn't he buy it fair and square, right? Uh, I mean, isn't it kind of his property? Why is um, um, why is uh, Frodo saying he's going to repossess, you know, Bag End? What he seems to be implying there, right? He's dropped the Bag Ends at least, and he'll leave Bag End too if I hear any more nonsense, right? He does not... Uh, he does not deserve to live in Bag End. Uh, he, I'm glad he is excluding himself from the family because I'm back and I'm going to kick him out of the family and I'm going to boot him the heck out of Bag End because he does, you know, after what he's done, he doesn't deserve it anymore. Um, uh, yeah, Nancy says that's definitely not how real estate works, right? But again, see, clearly more than just a real estate transaction, just as there seems to be more to the will, right? Bilbo's will. Um, this is why, uh, uh, this is why Otho, uh, and Lobelia come demanding to see the will, not only because they want the house, um, or at least again, this seems to be, uh, uh, this seems to be, a a, a further development of the, uh, you know, uh, why they want to see the will and everything because, uh, uh, Lobelia has, um, justification 
for thinking herself the logical head of the Baggins household rather than this. Uh, and again, think of her comment to Frodo. You're no Baggins. You're a Brandybuck. Right. Um, he's this interloper. Right. He's barely about he's styles himself as the Baggins. Right. The Mr. Baggins of Bag End. Remember that passage. Right. Yeah. Like you're the head of this family now. I don't think so. You you know, you little brandy buck. Right. Um, uh, you little half breed, hob, you know, Baggins. You're not even fully Baggins. Right. So, again, you, you can kind of uh, that concept that Tolkien lays out in that um, in that letter kind of when you push it back through a bunch of the things that are said here makes a lot of sense and again I think it's coming through pretty clearly right there and he'll leave back in too if I hear any more nonsense Um, but also just flat interesting that uh, Cosimo has in fact dropped the Baggins out of his name right Um, kind of uh, kind of interesting Um, okay Here's this. This is Gandalf's final hurrah in the scouring of the Shire. I'll wake him up in a way that'll surprise him, said Gandalf. This is, of course, the big man. If you mean that your precious mayor is employing ruffians out of the wild, then we've not come back too soon. He leaped from his horse and put his hand to the gate and tore the notice from it and threw it onto the path in the faces of the hobbits. Um... This was the last appearance of Gandalf before the final leave-taking at the Grey Havens. Gandalf was changed here to Frodo and horse to pony. And it was presumably at this point that the note given on page 77, Gandalf should stay at Bree, was written on the manuscript. It will be seen in what follows that that in this original version of the story, Frodo played a far more aggressive and masterful part in the events than he does in The Return of the King, even to the slaying of more than one of the ruffians at Bywater and their leader at Bag End, despite his words to Sam already present in the first manuscript of The Land of Shadow, I do not think it is my part to strike any blow again, any blows again. So, um, uh, yeah, anyway, um, uh, the, the, uh, it feels like this passage this seems to be the tipping point. Like it's at this moment and it's hard to, you know, I don't want to try to get into Tolkien's head and say, what was he thinking when he made this choice? But this passage is fairly striking, right? The ripping down of the notice and the throwing it on the path in the faces of the hobbits by Gandalf, right? By a bristling, angry Gandalf, um, threatening to surprise the big man. He himself is a big man, right? Apart from the whole wizard angle, just even physically, he's towering over these hobbits, right? And he's he's in this rage, and he's ripping things off, and he's throwing things around. It begins to sound almost abusive, right? Uh, like, here's Gandalf coming back, and he's ready to smack these little hobbits into line, right? Um, it's just like the dynamics are not right, right? That's just, that's not how it works. Um, and, you know, I think that that's a really, that's a really good... Um, a really good change. Exactly, Bruce. And that's even before you bring, take the eyebrows into account, right? Um, at that point, it becomes, you know, the, the power imbalance is just really too much to handle. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. It does look almost like bullying, Tony. And in particular, um, uh, in particular, you think of the dynamic in the sense that, like, okay, so they've been bullied 
the Hobbit, they're coming back and they're finding that these men, you know, these ruffians have been bullying the Hobbit. So what's the solution? Have another big man come in and bully them back into shape, right? It's just, yeah, no, 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 that, that, that really doesn't work. So the more that, um, uh, the more that the, um, Again, the the comments that he gives to Gandalf are very true to, you know, you can you can hear. Can't you hear Gandalf saying those things? Um, if you mean that your precious mare is employing ruffians out of the wild, then we've not come back too soon. Right. I mean, that sounds like Gandalf. You can totally hear that in Gandalf's voice. Um, so I do, it's not that I think he's making Gandalf act out of character. It's just when he does act out of character. Um, uh, then, um, uh, then, you know, he, he, uh, he finds that it doesn't work, right? It's not suitable. Uh, and indeed the parallel, you know, Stephen, that you're suggesting, right? He's like, well, the white wizard does have a history of oppressing hobbits, right? Exactly. I mean, the, the, the kind of awkward parallelism. I mean, on the one hand, you could say it works, right? Oh, Saruman's, what Saruman did uh, led to this in the show. So Gandalf's going to come in and clean house, right? And make it right. It's not that there's not a symmetry to that, obviously. Sure, there is, but it's a very different kind of story, right? And it makes it, that parallelism all by itself would make it feel much more kind of unilateral on Gandalf's part. Um and I, I, I think it's obviously a much better story when he when he makes that uh, when he makes that choice here. Um, one other brief note. Um, I've spoken before. It's been a while since we've talked about this, but I've spoken before about Tolkien's habit of like, how conservative Tolkien is as a reviser, like how um, reluctant he is to throw anything away. Um, this is so typical of his revision. So he, he, he gets to Gandalf has had several bullying speeches, right? Where he's throwing his wizardly weight around and, uh, and browbeating the hobbits. So Tolkien decides, no, 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 he's not there, right? He stayed at Bree. So Gandalf's not there. So clearly you've got to rewrite those scenes, right? Wrong. You don't have to rewrite those scenes. All you got to do is take those Gandalfian speeches, which sound a lot like Gandalf, and give them practically word for word to Merry and Pippin, right? No problem, right? Um, uh, you know, or Sam, right? You know, he, the, there are different characters that he gives to. Merry is the recipient of many uh, of many speeches, though, of course, in the interim, it's Frodo. Right. Frodo takes over Gandalf's harsh species at first, which sounds weird also, but that's a different issue. Right. That's the Frodo issue, which we'll get to as we continue moving forward here. Um, but just it's kind of amazing. Right. It doesn't it's to me one of the most unsettling or, or um, uh, Kate, to use your word from earlier, one of the most disconcerting experiences in reading these earlier drafts is when you come across uh, lines that you know word for word, except somebody else is saying them, right? Uh, and even lines that um, even lines that uh, that 
sound in the final draft. Like they might be lines that you would point to and be like, oh, like that is that is Pippin all over, right? Um, like that is that is such a perfect Pippin line. And then you go back to the original draft and find actually that line was originally somebody else entirely, right? And he transferred it over to Pippin. That doesn't, I think, invalidate the observation that we make in the published text, right? It does perfectly fit him. And what he does, what Tolkien is able to accomplish with some of these kind of minimalistic revisions is entirely remarkable. It's incredible to me the way he can radically convert a scene in a way that's... I mean, I've seen this happen a lot. I mean... As a composition teacher, this was one of my pet peeves. When I'd assign a revision, I'd say, you need to fix this. And they make like, they change like one word here and there and think that it's fixed. And I'm like, that's not fixed, right? You need to really come at this again, right? Um, I used to have that conversation a lot with my undergrads. Um, but, uh, but here we see Tolkien not doing that. And yet it is transformed, right? And that's uh, amazing. It's amazing to me. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's move forward with uh, Frel first to Sam moment. Uh, and I just, I cherish every line of Sam Gamgee that got cut out just because I love Sam's line so much that uh, I, 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 I love it. I mean, how awesome was it when Sam throws Ted Sandman into the river, right? Good. I can, I can tell you what you're going to do next. Take a bath. Whoosh. I mean, come on. That was fantastic. I loved that. Uh, you know, there's still a memory of it in his line about how he has no time for bathing. Um, but uh, but come on. Oh, man. The dunking of Ted Sandman was classic. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, Kate, I think, um, uh, yeah, and Matthew, I agree. Sandman getting thrown in the river, uh, might be the best thing that shouldn't have been cut, uh, from this chapter. Yeah, maybe. I, I, at the end of the day, where he came to is fine, but yeah, I do. There's definitely a strong part of me that, 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 um, regrets the, uh, chucking of Ted Sandman into the river. Kate, that's a really good way of saying it and thinking of passages like that. Um, Tolkien knows that the words are right but he hasn't yet found out where they belong. Right. Um, yeah, really, you know, those were like Pippin speeches all along. They just weren't initially correctly attributed to him. Um, yeah. Anyway, so, um, uh, but getting on to the actual passage I'm quoting here, if I hear not allowed much oftener, said Sam, I'm going to get angry. Can't say I'd be sorry to see it, said Robin. And he dropped his voice tell you the truth. Your coming back and Mr. Frodo and all is the best that's happened in a year. The mayor's in a fine taking. He'll be in a fine getting before many days are over, said Sam. <laughs> that's so good. To take that phrase in a fine taking, right, which is a, which is a, you know, a figure of speech, legitimate figure of speech, uh, and for him to reverse it out, he's, he'll be in a fine getting before many days are over. Uh, I mean, that... That kind of witticism, right? Like I'm going to take and I'm going to do wordplay uh, by cunningly reversing. I mean, that's a very, this is very like Oscar Wilde kind of wordplay, right? Which is a little unlike Sam. Um, but, but you know, kind of cool. I like it, right? I like it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
<laughs> Tony says, we don't know that Ted doesn't get thrown in the river. It's just untold. Perhaps that's still. Uh, yeah. So, so Tony, if you if you still want to imagine Sam throwing Ted in the river in your head, Canon, I think I think you can get away with that. Um, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, Steve and I agree. You can you can hear the difference right here, right? When Gandalf says things like this, it seems like bullying. With Sam, it's absolutely delightful. Yes, yes, the kind of um the the bluntness and the 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 perfect coolness with which uh they are speaking truth to power here, right? Uh is uh is absolutely delightful. Um Yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um our first confrontation with Sharky, that is uh, 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 Sharky, uh, um, take one. Yes, I see, said Frodo. I'm beginning to see a great deal, but I fear you're behind the times and the news here, ruffian Sharky. Your day's over. You come from Isengard, I think. Remember, this is the one, the confrontation that they have... Uh, uh, when they first get to, to Bywater, um, before they've gone on to Bag End or before they go to Farmer Cotton's. Your day's over. You come from Isengard, I think. Well, I have myself come from the south, and this news may concern you. The Dark Tower has fallen. There is a king in Gondor. Isengard is no more, and Saruman is a beggar in the wilderness. You are the fingers of a hand that has been cut off, and arm and body too are dead. The king's messengers will be coming soon up the greenway, not bullies of Isengard. The man stared at him, taken aback for a moment. Then he sneered. Swagger it, swagger it, little cock-a-whoop on your pony, he said. Big words and fat lies won't scare us. King's messengers, he said. When I see them, I'll take notice, maybe. This was too much for Pippin. As he thought of the minstrel upon Cormalin, and the praise of all the fair host, and hear this squint-eyed rascal calling the ring-bearer little cock-a-whoop, he flashed out his sword and rode forward, casting aside his cloak, so that the silver and sable of Gondor which he still wore could be seen. We are the king's messengers, he said, and I am the squire of Frodo of the Nine Fingers, knight of Gondor, and down you go in the road on your knees, or we'll deal with you changed to, and I am the esquire of the Lord of Minas Tirith, and here is Frodo of the Nine Fingers, renowned among all peoples of the West. You are a fool. Down on your knees in the road, or I'll set this troll's bane in you. His sword glinted red in the last rays of the sun. Merry and Sam drew and rode up beside him, but Frodo made no move. <laughs> Sharky Primus. Yeah, Sharky the first, uh, as both Matthew and Deborah suggested. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> Karina says you are the fingers of an arm of a hand that has been cut off is, first of all, gross, and second, very cool. Um, yeah, well, Stephen, it is, there is memories of the Barrow, right? It's also a kind of an awkward... Um, Mr. Frodo of the Nine Fingers is like your fingers of a hand that's been cut off, kind of like my finger, except totally different. And maybe there's a little bit too dis much dismemberment going around in this whole passage, perhaps. But um, uh, but anyway, um, 
Uh, I, I do like the metaphor about the hand and body. I mean, and the way it keeps piling on, right? It would be enough to say you are the fingers of a hand that has been cut off, right? Uh, I mean, because that not only says, I recognize that you are emissary, you know, you are you are the servants of, of Saruman, of Isengard, right? He's only a hand. He's not even the head, right? He's not, he's just a hand of Mordor, and that hand has been cut off, right? Um uh, but then, of course, piling onto that, and arm and body too are dead, right? Yeah, no, um, the whole corpse is rotting and stinking now. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So that's an interesting question. Uh, the change that the immediate change that Tolkien makes there, how Pippin in, in, first introduces himself as Frodo's squire and then changes it to Esquire of the Lord of Minas Tirith, um, and just introducing Frodo rather than announcing himself to be the servant, essentially, of, uh, of Frodo of the Nine Fingers. Or Squire, not exactly the same as servant, but still. Um, uh, to me, the like primary thing, right, the number one... Um, uh, the number one impulse here, right, which is very visible in that passage, is the elevation of Frodo, right? I mean, we've been we've seen Christopher referring to that. Um, we've already seen some examples of it, like how all of Gandalf's harsh and dramatic actions are transferred to Frodo initially. How he's really taking the lead and uh, bossing the, he's the one bossing the sheriffs around and um, and everything else. So. Um, yeah, Kate, no, I guess um, Pippin's already been identified. I mean, we already have him swearing the oath, right? Which there's no evidence that um, uh, that Aragorn rescinds, right? Uh, in fact, Pippin serving. Um, remember how he kind of, Tolkien kind of was uncertain about how the reunion with Merry and Pippin at the Field of Cormallon was going to happen, right? But in ev- the one thing that was common in every instance of it was he, uh, including in the published text, right, is that he is going to have Frodo and Sam meet Merry and Pippin in their positions as servants to the kings, right? Um, as esquires. Um, but uh, anyhow... Um, so yeah, so that's been settled. The the question again, the thing that the two introductions by Pippin have in common is that both of them greatly elevate Frodo and that is clearly the central point of them, right? The change seems to be Pippin's presentation of himself, right? The first one, so Tolkien's first impulse is to have Pippin himself take a very humble role, like I am merely the squire of Frodo, like do you know who this person is? Right. I'm not important, but he is super important. Right. That's the first impulse. Then he's like, yeah, no. okay. Pippin isn't going to downplay what is true. Right. That he is. He is, in fact, kind of a big deal. Um, uh, He's a knight of Gondor. Right. Um, But um, uh, but anyway, yes. And and yeah, you can't be as Tony says, you can't exactly be a knight and a squire at the same time. It's a little bit strange. yeah, but anyway, so he's still going to elevate Frodo, but he first begins by being like, first of all, let me explain who I am, right? Having established that, now let me make sure that you know this is Frodo of the Nine Fingers that we're talking about here. Um, yeah. 
Kate, it does recall Gandalf adding a second toast to Frodo and Sam at the feast after the burial. Once again, just as we can sort of see the the foundations of that kind of strange and unusual change, right? That is the change of not having Saruman be there in the Shire at the center of things, not having him be Sharky. And that feels weird, right? But we can see the roots of it, right? Uh, the seeds planted for that are... I guess it's a... That's a weird metaphor. It's like the... We can see the the inhibition, right, that kept that from happening. So, too, I think, uh, Kate, we can see the seeds here. This that, that metaphor works better. The seeds of this depiction of Frodo, the role that Frodo takes in the scouring of the Shire, this impulse to emphasize the glory of Frodo and the value of Frodo and how much he has grown and become a mighty lord himself. Right. Um, that second toast um, from Gandalf in Edoras is uh, a great illustration of how we see that impulse. Tolkien wanting to strongly emphasize that, and so Frodo being masterly when he returns to the Shire fits with that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I know, Creator, isn't this awesome? I mean, and I love that. There's details here we don't get in the published text, right? Do we get the... At least I don't remember them. His sword glinted red in the last rays of the sun. Do we get that in the published text? I don't remember that since maybe I'm just forgetting it. But um, uh, anyway, I think it's uh, uh, it's pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, Frodo, to me, the number one story, I mean, again, Christopher emphasizes it too, the number one story um, in the scouring, in this first version of the scouring of the Shire, is that Tolkien's initial impulse is to elevate Frodo in this way. He still elevates Frodo in the published text, but differently, right? Very differently. We'll get to more of this. The fall of Cosimo. What do you mean, Frodo? said Pippin. Poor Cosimo? I'd seal his doom if I could get at him. I don't think you understand it all quite, said Frodo, though you should. You've been to Isengard, but I've had Gan- you've been in Isengard, sorry. But I've had Gandalf to talk to, and we've talked much on the long miles. Poor Cosimo. Well, yes, he's both wicked and silly, but he's caught in his own net. Can't you see? He started trading with Saruman and got rich secretly and bought up this and that on the quiet, and then he's hired these ruffians. Saruman sent them to help him and show him how to build and maybe repair and other things, all other things. And now, of course, they're running things in his name and not in his name for long. He's a prisoner, really, in Bag End, I expect. Well, I am staggered, said Pippin. Of all the ends to our journey, this is the last I expected. To fight half-orcs in the Shire itself? To rescue Cosimo the Pimple of all people? Um... By the way, I, the pimple nickname is so much better with the definite article in the middle, right? Um, Lotho pimple is funny, right? Lotho the pimple is much funnier, <laughs> much funnier, right? Because Lotho pimple could just be a kind of mean-spirited nickname for somebody with a lot of acne, right? I mean, I, I always assumed, I always, I certainly always pictured um uh, Lotho as being, you know, Cosimo 
change to Lotho uh, as being as being you know having lots and lots of zits, but um, but it's a totally different thing to call him Cosimo the Pimple, right? It's not that he has pimples; it's that he is a pimple, right? Pimple is the best metaphor uh, for Cosimo, and honestly, it totally is, right? Like you are you are a pustule, right? You've, you are, you're a big man, right? You have grown and your lands have expanded and, but you're, you're just, you've not in fact grown in stature like Frodo has. You have merely swelled like a, like a pimple and need to be popped so the pus can come out and the wound can heal, right? It's a wonderful, disgusting metaphor, uh, for Cosimo slash Lotho's role, right? It's fantastic. Uh, but, um, uh, but yeah, so why he left out the the, why, why he becomes Lotho Pimple, I don't know. But, um, uh, but anyway, there we go. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Devorah says, just blame the printers. Yeah, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe he really meant it to be Lotho the Pimple. Um, <laughs> yeah, blame the printers cause they can't defend themselves. Yep. Exactly. I choose to believe that, yeah, all of the changes not explicitly mentioned in these texts, uh, which I don't like, are not Tolkien's fault. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, one other thing that I think we can see illustrated, another kind of reminder as we're reading through here, two things. First, Remember, as Christopher has reminded us, and as we've discussed at many points, just because Tolkien takes something out doesn't mean that it isn't there. Like the the, right? The the is there in principle, even though it's not stated. But in addition to that, um, there are many of the specific details here that are not spelled out in the final text. Because, and again, this is my second point, uh, remember last time when we were looking at the many parting stuff, I was talking about how unusual Right, how remarkable it is in many partings, how mar- remarkable it seems to me that he does an outline and then kind of fills in details of that outline and then keeps expanding as he goes along until he's fleshed it out to the full form. That may seem a totally logical way to write, and I would probably write more like that but uh, myself, but it's unusual for Tolkien. This is how Tolkien's drafting was more commonly went, right? This kind of really fast, really bad writing... Um, as these ideas are tumbling out and he's getting the whole narrative, and usually he writes down more than he keeps in uh, at in, in, in the end, right? The process of revision is less one of fleshing out an outline and more of, I said too much, I made it too explicit, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut back on some of those details. Again, not necessarily because he's changed his mind about them, but because he doesn't want to say it all. He doesn't want to do all of this exposition. So Frodo makes a speech almost exactly like this in the published text. It's just shorter, right? He gives fewer details. But I don't doubt, in this case, everything that Frodo says in this paragraph is undoubtedly true. Um, It's just that he doesn't do quite as much detailed uh, um, exposition. Exactly. He's pruning. Um, uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Exactly, Stephen. He does tend to over-explain, right? Because he's sort of seeing this stuff and working it out 
on the fly, right, in prose as he goes through, and then he trims it back. That's the normal procedure, the more representative, I would say, procedure, right, of Tolkien's drafting. Um, but as a result, and it's one of the things that makes the draft so much fun, is because as a result, we get to learn stuff that we don't know from the text, in which I think is probably still relevant, right? So this it's, it's awesome. Now we can think of him as Lotho the Pimple. Pimple as metaphor, not as mean nickname. Love it. Okay, um, here's another wonderful example of something that gets cut uh, or trimmed down very significantly. But again, I don't think any of it's really gone. The arrival at the Cottons. The bolts were drawn back stealthily, and it crossed Sam's mind that he had never known that door to be locked, let alone bolted before. Farmer Cotton put a head round and looked at them in the gloaming. His eyes grew round as he looked at them, and then grave. Well, he said, voices sound all right, but I wouldn't but I, I wouldn't have knowed you. Come in. There was dim light in the passage, and he scanned their faces closely. Right enough, he said, and laughed with relief. Mr. Baggins and Sam and Mr. Mary and Mr. Pippin. Well, you're welcome, more than welcome, but it's a sorry homecoming. You've been away too long. What's come of my gaffer? said Sam anxiously. Not too well, but not too bad, said Farmer Cotton. He's in one of they new shire houses, but he comes back to my but he comes to my back door, and I sees he's better fed than some of the poor things. He's not too bad. Sam drew a breath of relief. Shire houses, he said. I'll burn the lot down yet. <laughs> nice, Sam, don't hold back. They went into the kitchen and sat down by the fire, which the farmer blew up to a blaze. We go to bed early these days, he said. Lights a night bring unwelcome questions. And these ruffians, they lurk about at night and lie abed late. Early morning's our best time. Um, the, um, yeah, Stephen, he doesn't threaten to gnaw the houses down if he has to, I agree. Um, so, again, lots of detail here. One of the things that's so striking to me, notice how we can really see Tolkien imagining here what was the daily life of the oppressed hobbits like, right? We get little glimpses of it that linger into the published text, but we never get a picture this clear. Um, even think of the the stealthiness with which he draws the bolts back, right? Um, the hesitancy with which he invites them in. Uh, the relief he feels when he sees that it's really them and it's not a trick, right? His quotation of what sounds like it has become a new figure of speech, right? Um, lights a night bring unwelcome questions, right? Um, uh, you know, that's, that. yeah. Uh, uh, this glimpse of um, early mornings are best time, right? How, like, the in the early morning hours when all of the, uh, when all of the ruffians are lounging in bed, um, that's the, the only time when, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the idea of, Imagining these early morning hours on the farm, right? Those are the times when now the gaffer can sneak up and come to his back door and he can, you know, so he routinely is handing out food and things to poor bodies uh, who come to his back door, who only come to the back door at dawn, right? Or after dawn. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a really charming, much more clear, much more visceral picture of life in this dystopia, right, that uh, the Shire has kind of devolved into. Um, it, 
I, again, I, to me, it, it, it hits much more, uh, much more har- uh, strongly. Right. Um, again, I don't, I doubt this has changed. Um, I'm sure that all of the conceptions that underlie this passage are probably, I don't see any reason to think they're not still in Tolkien's mind. He just doesn't spell it out this much. Um, yeah, good. Christopher and James Oakley both are noticing how much more rustic Farmer Cotton's dialect is. He um, he does speak with a more rustic dialect. Um, his his speech is more like Sam's and the gaffer's speech patterns, um, but less so. I agree. Um, Tolkien does exaggerate it here. Um, yeah. Anyway, and notice how much less of. Uh, how much less of stature Farmer Cotton is, right? And again, that seems to fit, right? We want Frodo needs to, like, stand head and shoulders above all the other hobbits, right, when he comes back to the Shire. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, James, I agree. It's more comedic in the published text. The comment about um, um, Sam's face Right. Your face is no worse than it was, uh, he says to Sam. Right. Um, very different from like, oh, come inside and then I'll confirm that it's really you. Right. Um, there's almost like a give the countersign. Right. It's weird. Um, yeah. Boomful, did my volume just jump heavily? I have. There is something whacked in my audio system, and I have no idea what it is. That's happened on a couple broadcasts where, like, for, like, 20 seconds, all of a sudden the the mic gets blasted really loud, and then it goes back down again. And I'm not changing anything. Nothing's changing. I don't have any idea why that happens. Super weird. Um, anyway. Oh, it's interesting, but that didn't happen, James, in GoToWebinar, only in Twitch? Hmm... Very interesting. Oh, Tim says only on my right speaker. Very interesting. Yeah, Nargles, Kurita, clearly, clearly Nargles messing with my audio. Fascinating. Okay. That's an interesting... I, just, I, got, I received some interesting data trying to problem solve, uh, trying to troubleshoot this problem here. So uh, that's good. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, more. Oh, man. The Battle of Cotton Farm, right? Um, so the ruffians tra- uh, 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 come to them in in the house, right? Notice also the potential parallels here. Um, when they're surrounded and the ruffians are talking about burning the place down around them, right? Um, it's um, notice how this almost begins to sound like all of a sudden we might be in a Norse epic, right? And everyone's gonna die. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, defending uh, defending a, a surrounded house while your enemy burns it down around you would be a very Norse ending to this story, right? Um, uh, that's um, kind of interesting. But anyway, okay. Um, all the better, said Frodo. Now for it. So the whole gang has come and Frodo's excited that they're all there. The four hobbits stood back to the wall towards which the door, the door swung. The farmer unbolted the bolts, turned the key, and then slipped back to the stairs. The door swung open and in peered the head and shoulders of Sharky. They let him come in, and then quickly Frodo drove the point of his sword into his neck. Wow! He fell, and there was a howl of rage outside. 
Burn them! Burn them! Voices cried. Go and get fuel! Nar! Dig them out! Said two, and thrust into the passage. They had swords in their hands, but Frodo, now behind the door, swung it suddenly in the face of the rear one, while something stam Sam ran sting through the other. Then the hobbits leaped out. The ruffian who had been down on his face was leaning against the doorpost. He fled, blood pouring from his nose. The farmer took the sword from the fallen ruffian and stood guard at the door. The hobbits ranged about the yard stealthily. They came on two ruffians bringing wood in from the woodpile and somethinged and killed them. I don't even know what happened first. Before they were attacked. It is like a rat hunt, said Sam. But that's only four and one with a broken nose. Sam's appetite for blood is unslaked. At that moment they heard Mary shouting, Gondor, to the mark! And they ran and found him in a corner of the stackyard, with four ruffians pressing on him, but held at bay by his sword. They had only knives and clubs. Frodo and Sam came running from one side and Pippin from another. The ruffians fled, blowing horns, but one more fell to Frodo's sword before he could escape. Whew! All right. Um... Kate Neville says, this sounds like the version that Peter Jackson might have filmed. Yeah, uh, no, I think he would have been into this. Um, this is, Christopher, isn't this amazingly brutal? I'm trying to, re are there any other descriptions, like, at all of battles that are as gruesome as this? I mean, we get... Um, We get some dismemberments, you know, we get some, but this, this is, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, Ben, exactly, it's Frodo and the Nibelungs and the not-yet-burning farm, no, definitely sounds like that, um, and, oh my goodness, Marianne, exactly, how many miles are we away from the Frodo who will not, um, you know, who will not draw his sword, right, in the published text. Um, it's like we're getting further and further from that all the time. Um, uh, yeah, not even in Moria. No, that's the one I was thinking of, Christopher, in particular, the battle in Moria. Um, yeah, yeah. Mar Marilyn says Tolkien is extremely pissed off by the ruination of the Shire. Yeah, well, Sam is, right? It's like a rat hunt. Really? I mean, yeah, okay. Um, you know, that's, uh, that's um, evocative, right? And an interesting reversal, right? Far from being the bullied ones, right? They're not the big bullies. They're just like rats that we have to hunt down. Uh, and of course, hunting rats is something which, like Sam would have done, right? As a gardener, like you got to, like, the, the, you know, the rats would have been pests that, you know, he would have exterminated uh in times past so um you know it's a it's a metaphor within his uh, or a simile technically um you know within his idiom right um but um anyway uh this is um an altogether remarkable passage uh uh even even the tactics Right? I mean the the detailed um uh the detailed tactics which Tolkien describes here, like them standing against this door and slamming the door the door here and 
then coming around and, and approaching those four ruffians from either side. And I mean, it's um, much more detail than we get in almost any uh, battle. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's um, yeah. Good. Bruce, that is interesting. It kind of recalls the detailed tactics we got in the early version of Helm's deep. Yes. Yes, that is true. Um, I think perhaps we can see, um, a change there, right? Perhaps we can see there um, an alteration in this trend toward... So, I've often said, and just looking at the published text, Tolkien doesn't show much interest in the details of battlefield tactics. I mean, you just almost... There are very, very few examples of... Tolkien giving descriptions of detailed tactics um, in the published text. I mean, the whole pincher movement between, uh, uh, you know, Fingen and Mithros in the Nirnaith Arnoidiad, which of course goes horribly wrong, um, is the like one of the closest that we get to real, you know, we get a little bit of it at the beginning of the Battle of Five Armies, but anyway, there's just not much. Um, and I always took that for sort of lack of interest in on Tolkien's part. But I agree with you, uh, Bruce. The evidence does seem to suggest that he does think that way, but then deliberately cut it out of most of the stories, right? Um, it's one of the things that he trims back on uh, when he revises. Um, and yes, James, the biggest single exception, of course, was one never published, uh, uh, in his lifetime, uh, which is his description of the Battle of the Fords of Eisen, um, which is extraordinarily detailed uh, in its depiction of the battle tactics of the Rohirrim as they're trying to defend the Fords of Eisen. Um, yeah. And of course, Tomas, you're right. We always have the fall of Gondolin, too. There also we can see uh, a lot of interest in that kind of thing. So, yeah, no, I agree. Um, uh you know, I don't know why yeah, Devorah is it because he thought his audience wouldn't be interested. Is it because he just he wanted to emphasize different things? You know, he didn't want the emphasis to lie there. He wanted it to lie elsewhere. Um But um but anyway, yeah, he um uh, he doesn't seem to stick with this kind of thing. Of course he's not gonna stick with this entire scene, but um uh but yeah, yeah. Um yeah Christopher, you're right. The disaster of the Gladden Fields. We get the Numenorean battle tactics, right? Um, yeah, we see how they would have kicked it Numenorean style on the battlefield, right? And that seems to be one of his interests there. Um, yep, yep. No, in those texts, he's very, very detailed. So, yeah, no, I think it's... The evidence seems to suggest it's not lack of interest on his part uh, in that. Um, but he does seem fairly systematic in his choice not to include that stuff in the final published text. Um, Stephen, I do suspect, uh, you're right, I suspect that the Cottons do in fact throw their dishes out of the upstairs windows. They do seem to have an upstairs, right? And I, I assume, therefore, that like all good hobbits should, they throw their dirty dishes out of the upstairs windows. So, yeah, yeah, no, uh, clearly, I think that that's, uh, uh, it's not explicit, but I think it's it's plainly implicit in the text there. Um, yeah, good. Um, 
the last thing, and again, this is a really obvious point, but it bears stating explicitly. It's one thing to say Tolkien wanted to raise Frodo's status, right? He wanted to show Frodo returning to the Shire and turning to the, the t returning to the Shire in heroic with heroic stature. It's one thing to say that. It's entirely another thing to say, yeah, and that heroic stature should look like this, right? That he makes Frodo into an action hero in the scouring of the Shire, right? Down to the solo combat, like to the boss fight at the end, right? Um, you know, Frodo being like, no, no, I will take him single-handed, right? I mean, that's very, very remarkable. Very remarkable that Tolkien makes that call, right? That he makes that choice to say, again, it is one thing and a very interesting thing that he wants to emphasize Frodo and emphasize Frodo. This is, do you know who this is? This is Frodo of the Nine Fingers. Um, it's a completely different thing to say that this is the kind of glory, the kind of stature that he should have. Um, yeah, Bruce says that maybe Frodo will be played by The Rock in the reboot movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you think in uh, uh, the Amazon Lord of the Rings, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna uh, 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 put The Rock. They're gonna cast The Rock into into Frodo's role. I mean, again, there are moments when this almost that almost sounds appropriate, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, Stephen. Yeah, that's well recalled. We see the impulse in both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings to have his hero be a legendary warrior. Um, for those of you who haven't read the history of The Hobbit, the first impulse, the very first time he describes the death scene of Smaug, it's Bilbo who single-handedly stabs Smaug um, and kills him. And not only that, he gets drenched in the blood of the dragon and is made invulnerable, is hardened. Uh, like Sigurd is hardened by the blood of Fafnir. Um, so yeah, like Bilbo almost came back to the Shire very changed indeed from his adventure. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's... Um, a, I get, that impulse is brief in the manuscript history of The Hobbit, but it's there, Stephen, just as you say, right? And so the idea that he's kind of... I almost said relapsing into that model here with Frodo is totally fascinating to me. Um, and Bruce says, reminds me we do get him compared uh, to Turin and Baron. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, yeah. Yeah. And Tony, I agree. When, when he gets to the final version, it's much more like his own war experience where soldiers come home after heroic deeds and nobody knows or cares. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, let's continue to... Uh, <laughs> Come on! Holy cow! This passage just cracked me up. I laughed so hard. There are, so this is in the notes. There are a couple of pages of roughly penciled text which repeat with minor alterations and extensions this section of the chapter in A, made perhaps because my father recognized the near illegibility of the original, and these pages have provided help in elucidating it here and there. Characteristically, Christopher adds, the words or phrases that defy elucidation in the original text are expressed differently in the second, as if Tolkien himself couldn't read them, right? 
Um, uh, but here's my favorite point. At this point, the penciled text has uh, that. So this remember, there's a reference in the in the in the draft to how the Tooks had uh, uh, that more than one of the ruffians had been brought into the great house of the Tooks uh, and beaten, right, and thrashed. And I was like, well, they dragged him inside and then and then beat him up. Like, that's kind of hardcore. Like, uh, OK. Um, and <laughs> they've caught a ruffian or two and thrashed him in the tookus. Come on. <laughs> thrashed him in the tookus. Right. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, um, and, and then Christopher Tolkien explains, you know, in in. Uh, without elaborating on the joke, right? Explains the verbal humor, right? Took us being took house as workhouse becomes workus. <laughs> Thrashed him in the tookus. Oh, come on. Um, <laughs> oh, that is hilarious. Um, and, uh, uh, and kind of unanticipated, right? Like that kind of humor. Um, even that kind of wordplay, like Tolkien, for all of his fascin fascination with words and wordplay and the sound of words, um, is surprisingly uninterested. Surprisingly, is uninterested to a surprising degree in puns. He doesn't make that many puns. I'm not saying he never makes puns, but he makes comparatively few puns. Um, you know, most of the great, you know, the the great authors, like the, the authors for whom the language itself is a kind of playground, right? Who just love to play with English and do these amazing things with English, um, like Shakespeare, for instance, Shakespeare never avoided a pun if he could possibly help it. Right. He just loves puns uh, because puns are just like the, the way that when you can take two words which sound exactly the same, but mean quite different things and throw them together and just kind of like enjoy the the friction and the sparks that kind of emerge when you when you bring them together like you know like the ends of of live wires right and the sparks and things that fly off them um it's almost like a pun is that kind of an experience in shakespeare right he he, he i mean he he can't help it he can't stop himself right from making these kinds of uh, these kinds of of puns i agree lewis carroll uh very similar very similar um uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And of course I would add to that list, uh, also the brilliant linguistic artist that I've been spending a great deal of my time studying over the last few weeks, Marshall Mathers, same thing. But anyway, I won't talk about that right now. Um, yeah. So, but Tolkien doesn't make puns very often. Um, it's interesting to me that he doesn't make puns because again, so many people who are that fascinated in language often do. Um, but, um, anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. See exactly. Arthur, like this, 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 uh, serious condition with which you are afflicted. Arthur Harrow is, uh, 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 one of the most dedicated punsters I have ever seen 
on an internet chat screen, and that is saying something, right? Uh, uh, so yeah, you see, Arthur, you're you're in wonderful company. Um, but uh, anyway, thrashed him in the tuchus. Uh Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Nancy, you're right. We do see quite a few puns in Farmer Giles, but I still I wouldn't say. Um, um, I still wouldn't say that uh, they're frequent. No, I mean, not like Shakespeare frequent. Um, I mean, Shakespeare can be, I mean, be, how many scenes in Shakespeare have no puns at all, right? I mean, I'd be super surprised if there were a single Shakespeare play which did not average a pun per scene, like total the number of puns divide by the number of scenes, like it's going to be more than one, right? Uh, I mean, he he can't help himself. And sometimes like multiple t- per line, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it happens in Tolkien, but again, unusually. And yeah, uh, a couple of people are commenting on how, uh, um, how interesting it is that, that, that took us is a, is a, is a Yiddish expression. Um, which is very interesting. Um, and post 1500, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, this is, hopefully you're right, this is like the closest thing to a, like a sort of naughty pun, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I hope you appreciated my feeble attempt at joining in the spirit of the pun with my subtitle there. Um, anyway, okay, Move, moving on, <laughs> moving on from the tuchus. Um, and we're running out of time. Whoa, we're really technically out of time, and this is a long passage. Why don't we stop here? Let's stop. Let's stop with. Let's stop with the tuchus. How can we do better? Um, okay. Um, Let's, um, yeah, let's end here. Uh, we'll come back to the end. We'll look at, we'll get to Sharky Mark II. Uh, and then, of course, finally, Saruman's uh, intervention. You're right, Boomful. We have come to the end of this class. <laughs> that seems like a, a perfect note on which to end it, right? Um, okay. All right. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so having, having, having arrived at the end of this discussion, uh, we will stop. Um, okay. Uh, anyway, uh, thanks for joining me again. We'll be back three weeks from today. Uh, so second Wednesday in July, we will return, um, and get through my goal will be to finish the whole rest of, uh, the, um, uh, history of the Lord of the Rings, uh, through the epilogue. We'll see how that goes. Um, yeah. One quick thing that I wanted to remind you guys of um, uh, uh, one thing and then a, a kind of addendum to that, actually. Tomorrow night, Thursday night, we're having some film. Um, film film at its new time. It's going to be in the evenings now, Tuesday uh, or Thursday, alternate Thursdays um, on at uh, 10 p.m. So new time. Um, that will be the permanent new time for film film. Um, so that's shifting to, to weeknights. So if you can join us for that, that would be great. Film film is an enormous amount of fun. Um, and uh, the second thing that I would point out, 
tomorrow night's broadcast, Selm Film broadcast, will be the 500th episode of the Tolkien Professor podcast. Um, I just discovered this like today. I didn't even know that. Uh, but yeah, so tomorrow night's recording is going to be episode 500 uh, of... Uh, uh, of 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 not uh, not of film film of the whole Tolkien Professor podcast, so that's going to be kind of awesome. So maybe we'll do something fun. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, we'll always do something fun because it's film film. But uh, maybe we'll do something to celebrate that. Anyhow, thanks everybody uh, for joining me again. See you guys here, Mythgard Academy, second Wednesday in July, and hope to see many of you at uh, Mythmoot. And if you can't make Mythmoot, don't forget Moodcast. See you guys later. Bye now.